Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Bart, author of Moving the Needle, and they discuss how to effectively implement OKRs to move your business forward. Why solving a strategy execution problem starts with changing the behavior of individuals on your team, and how to optimize the speed of learning in your organization. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. All right, so is your book called Moving the Needle? It's called Moving the Needle with Lean OKRs, but the focus is on Lean OKRs. Yeah. What's a Lean OKR versus a not Lean OKR? Yeah, so I've been using OKRs for the past 10 years or so, and it's, it's, it's almost like a hype ever since the John Dork came up with the, the, the Measure What Matters books and everybody's jumping on the OKR bandwagon. And the problem is that in companies, there are a lot of goals and a lot of measurements, targets, KPIs, whatever, and they all get converted into OKRs. And oh, hooray, we're doing OKRs. And you know that's not the point with OKRs. So Lean OKRs is, is actually in my attempt to say, okay, it's not about all those converting all those goals into, into the OKR template. There's more to that. And if you work like this, how it was intended to be, it opens up a lot of possibilities for engineering organizations to help engineers escape their feature factories, etc. So Lean OKR is actually a full version or actually the correct version and how I believe how OKR should, should work. So, yeah. And then why the name Moving the Needle? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because... When you're working with OKRs or goal setting in general, you always want to go from point A to B. So you always want to improve the condition. You always want to improve your business. You want to grow your business. You want to improve innovation, et cetera. So in that sense, yeah, you, you're moving the needle. You ex- if you implement OKRs correctly, you get this exponential gr- uh, uh, growth. So that's how I see that you move the needle for your organization. That was one of the things I liked about you because there's a lot of you know consultants out there and there's a lot of books, but you chose the phrase moving the needle and you connected it back to objectives and key results. And for me, that's interesting because your business model is your consultant, right? Mm-hmm. So you get people that are stressed out because the needle's not moving, exactly. right? So yeah. it's pretty intelligent to write a book called Moving the Needle because when I'm experiencing the reason why I would need your service, right? Um, I am looking for solutions and then I see that book and it, it's like an aha moment. It's, it's very exciting to find that book and then you read through it. And in that book, do you just give out like the best, most valuable information or is it lighter and salesier and fluffier? No, it's a, it's a very practical book. So, uh, because I, I got a lot of clients or, or people that I work with like, Hey Bart, how's, you know, this OKR thing, right? You know, how does it work? And this was actually my attempt to, to, to collect all the information that I knew about OKRs, did a lot of research about the topic, also based on experience that I have with, with clients, and then put it all in, in, in a book. So it is very practical. So it's not fluffy, it is, but it's also not a business novel. So it's a really enhanced book to implement OKRs. Can you walk me through an example of like how you've worked with a client? Like They had some problem, they brought you in. Can you give me like a real world example? Yeah, so most of the clients, they, they call me in because they have a strategy execution problem. They want to move the needle. So then I say, okay, you know, all the, from all the things that you tried, it's not going to work, right? So you need to have a better strategy to make sure that you move the needle. And in the book, I call out a very important strategy for that, and that's behavior change. And if you think about that, it all makes sense, right? So if you change the behavior, 
maybe of your employees or, for, or your customers, it will result into new habits. Those new habits will result in better results, which will then result in better outcomes. And because I have a technology background, like in, in technology and in software engineering, and so you, you can think about, okay, we want to do this digital transformation or we want to do this DevOps transformation. What does it mean? You know, why, does it, why, doesn't, why doesn't it work? And I, I strongly believe that you need to change the behaviors of, for example, engineers in order to, to get there, right? And then, then OKR could be, uh, OKRs could be a very powerful framework to change the habits, uh, to change the behavior of people. This is one way to use it. The other way to use it is to actually change customer behavior, which is way more difficult. But the focus on changing customer behaviors, changing customer outcomes, that will hopefully result in this exponential curve, which will lead to strategy execution that you that you want. So how do you actually change the behavior? I'm assuming you don't just like yell at people. <laughs> <laughs> no, it starts with insights. So I think in any transformation, it starts with, do we have a problem at all, right? So, or, or can we just turn the lights on and... I think a great way to do that is to use metrics, metrics that actually <laughs> measure something useful, not some kind of vanity metrics. And I think the, the, that's the first start to create some awareness of the problem that we're having. I think most most listeners, you know, um, are familiar with in the tech um, domain or software development domain. And you think, okay, we want to increase lead time or one of the Dora metrics, right? This is a great start to thinking about, oh, we want to increase deployment frequency. What is our deployment frequency right now, <laughs> right? And, and you know, just the fact that you start measuring that, it creates a lot of awareness. Oh, we don't, we're not doing great. And also maybe compared to our, you know, high performance in the market, we're not doing so great. Okay, um, then the next step is, okay, what will be our target? What will be our vision? Like, where do we want to be with our company in the next year or so? And if you establish that target, then you can define some smaller steps and breaking it down basically to uh, to move towards that um, that longer term vision that you have, for example, for deployment frequency or mean time to failure or, or any any kind of these deployment metrics. But the same principle applies for if you want to you know reduce customer churn, for example. You break it down. You first make you make the insight like what's our customer churn right now, and then you set the target like where do we want to be three months from now, one year from now. Then you break it down and you start with small steps basically, and you try to experiment and see if you're heading in the right direction. That seems pretty simple. Why is it so hard? Why isn't everybody doing it? I don't know. <laughs> no, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's really hard. And and I think the. The book is called Lean OKRs because there are a lot of lean principles behind it. And if you go back to the Toyota factory, right, and, and then asking why can't American companies or European companies not adopt that, that model, it's the same with this question. And it, I think it all comes down to mindset, right? You need to have the right mindset in order to adopt this scientific thinking mindset, which is really hard especially for engineers <laughs> to, to, because they want to, they want to focus on, on solutions the whole time, solution, delivery, 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 instead of, oh, let's, let's do one step back and think about, okay, what can we explore more in our domain? What are all the obstacles that we, that we're encountering <clears throat> and adopting this mindset is, is I think key to, to, um, and this, the, basically this problem solving mindset is key to change the behavior. And in order to do that, you need to have strong technical leaders that can actually coach people uh, on how to do this. And what I see now, a lot of, for example, engineering managers, they became manager, but they only became people manager. They're doing their one-on-one conversations, and and but they're not doing technical coaching anymore, or you know, uh, coaching their people. And I think that's 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 wrong. Like you know, we have agile coaches maybe walking around, 
adopting, you know, the agile mindset, but, you know, technical coaching, how are you going to de- deploy rapidly to production uh, so that we can run 10 experiments per week, for example? How are you going to do that technically? And, and somebody needs to, need to teach that. And I think that's largely missing in, in, in many organizations that this, this, um, this uh, teaching management style. So in your engagements, do you ever have, like a leader will obviously make the decision to bring you in and then you're going to analyze, understand the problem, get to know the team, provide different results for them, different paths that they could possibly take. How often do you get resistant teams, like people that don't want to do the change? Because change is hard. There's a lot of people that are, you know, don't like change. Yeah. Yeah. So this is my favorite. And, and of course I'm biased, but this is my favorite game, for example. It's called the Etza Fluency game. I'm not sure if you heard about it. It's, from, it's created by James Shore and Diana Larson. It's actually a real physical board game. And in that game, you learn how to create a startup or how to create a company, basically, and how to deal with all the technical and, 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 and agile practices that come along with that, including business experiments, et cetera, so, uh, in relationship to OKRs. And especially with management, when playing this, this, this game with senior management, they think like, yeah, agile, yeah, that's, that's easy, you know. We will play this game. And, 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 and the goal of the game is to, to, win, to have like the maximum high score in terms of money. Like you need to make money. And almost all leaders, they fail. Right? They miserably fail. <laughs> their, their startup dies. When I play this game with engineers, most of the time they win the game, and this is really interesting. Right? They they understand how how it works. But but by playing this game, it creates a lot of awareness about how they need to change. Like they they understand. Okay, there's something some things that we don't do correctly right now, or there's a lot of things that we can improve to get there. So the, you get a lot of people getting enthusiastic about this idea. Of, Okay, this is how it can, can, can work. And then after we play this game, we can do a diagnostic. So we can look at what's, what are the current behaviors now in, in, for example, in a software development team or product team. And after we've done this, I typically engage with, uh, with, uh, with coaching. So actually doing coaching, technical coaching, business coaching. And I prefer this to do this in a uh, more programming style. How do I get that game? You can't get it. I'm a licensed facilitator or licensed uh, trainer to, so that you can get the game. Who invented but it? You need to, I'll, I'll just call them. <laughs> Who invented the game? James Shore and Diana Larson, they created the game from the agilefluencyproject.org. So if you go to the agilefluency.org, there are a lot of events, I think also a lot of events in the United States where you can actually subscribe to play the game. And if you played it once, then you can buy your own copy. And they can play it with, uh, with, other, with other teams. Oh, I want to play it on the show. I think that'd be a fun episode. Who knows? It might end up horrible or it might end up Oh, amazing. that would be great. That would be amazing. But you need to do it physically. And, and then with, uh, I think, at least three players, that would be great. Are you in the States? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm in, uh, close to Amsterdam in, in the Netherlands. So I'm in Europe. Next time you're in the States, send us a message and maybe we can figure out how to connect up and do that game and do an episode. Yeah, yeah. It's, re- it's really fun and it's really insightful. I like. I'm curious how well I would do as an entrepreneur. <laughs> well, most most <laughs> entrepreneurs, when when I'm playing this game with also with executive teams, they all lose. <laughs> so yeah. they have no clue about how to how to do how to become real agile, and 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 not because they don't understand the concepts, but most of the time they don't understand the technical practices that come along with that. Like how how do you build a high performing team that can pl- deploy you know many times per day to production? How do you can, how how do, how do you build T-shaped engineers? All these kind of things. 
that's something that you learn from the game. And and then a lot of engineers, they love it. So they are willing to change like, oh, when can we start? <laughs> uh, when can we start changing? Yeah. Right. That's that's the purpose of the game is to allow them to come to this conclusion that they understand how to see the business this way and that if they make these changes, they can have better results. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. But you can also do it without the game, of course, by focusing on the metrics and doing a, a team self-diagnosis on, on their behaviors, um, see the, how they behave and then compare it to, to market behaviors and then uh, compare notes. And yeah, then they can decide if they want to improve or not. But what really got me frustrated and still is frustrating me is that we have like highly educated engineers. You know, most of, most of them have university degrees and they're actually taking orders, right, from product managers, product owners, like here are the requirements, please implement. And I think they're really smart brains and you should try to involve them into discovery sessions and into actually solving customer problems instead of, you know, here's the requirements, just coding and let me know when it's done. And I think there, there is, you get the innovation from, from these moments, right? The, the innovation comes from your engineers and not from product managers, <laughs> right? Because the engineers are the closest to the technology. They know what's possible. They know all the latest uh, developments. So if you just invite them to the room when you're doing discovery sessions, for example, you know, magic will happen. And I think that's the beauty of OKRs. You get a lot of these, you get a, a group of mixed people around a pro- hard problem to solve. Not only engineers, but also product people, marketing people, salespeople, they're all get a, getting involved around a, a common problem that you're trying to solve as a company or as a product team. And, and then uh, great innovations start to happen. Yeah, part of our onboarding process is we have people sit with the sales team during sales calls. Whether you're an engineer or whatever you may be, you'll sit with the with the sales team, you'll understand what we do for our sales calls so that you can have an idea of like what are we selling our people. You know, cuz I I call it the magical paycheck or the mythical paycheck. There's no paycheck fairy. <laughs> it's the way an economy works is we do something useful for somebody in exchange, they give us money and we allocate that money and part of that allocation is your pay to do a function that in turn creates value as part of the value that they're receiving. And if you don't understand where you fit in inside of that value stream or that value cycle, then you're flying blind as far as wanting to grow your career or improve in business. Exactly, yeah. And a lot of times what I try to do with companies is building this value creation, a value creation tree or something like that, a value creation structure. And, and most of the time, this is absent, right? Uh, how are you building value for your customers? Who are your customers? And what's the value providing them? Right? Yeah, yeah, cheaper services, for example. Yeah, that customers don't care about cheaper services. Maybe they do, but you know, they go. So how are you? How are you different than your competitors? And because nobody's going to work and say, as an engineer, hey, I'm going to work to make the to make it cheaper for our customers. I right? don't, you know, we don't care. So I think you should. Everybody, every company should build this, you know, value creation model or some sort so that everybody understands how everything is connected to each other. And I think it helps with, you know, uh, creating purpose for people and making sure that uh, people stay longer with your company. If you have such a model, which is not focused on financials at all, <laughs> but it's focusing on the real customer problems you're trying to solve and the real customer value you bring. But the internship idea that you suggested, like, you know, going through sales and marketing, I think that's, that's, that's really powerful. I see a lot of organizations do the, the similar things, like, you know, go to customer support, go work there for one week, see what you learn. 
and then go back as an engineer. And, you know, you're going to program differently. <laughs> I'm sure about that. Oh, yeah. And I'm always surprised because I have a bias because we have, you know, we research people, try to have some of the best people in the world on the show. So I get this situation where I'm always talking to really great people. And I try to pick up on the patterns that they have and the habits that they have. And we make notes and we research them pretty in depth. And one of the things that I found was that these great leaders constantly are mixing their people, their teams. They try to pull people out of... You don't want anybody off in a dark corner. You want to always make sure that these people understand how the company is operating and I've noticed that at different sizes too. And it looks different at different sizes, right? Like at some of the way larger companies, they have these internal systems where you can apply and go do things in different departments. At smaller companies, it's often you know on you to raise your hand and say, I'm curious. To be honest with you, that was one of the patterns that I identified talking to so many leaders was that the people who were curious about what was happening in other parts of the business and like maybe left engineering to go actually work in customer service and then left that and worked in sales and then did like a sales engineering mix or whatever it may be, working in different parts of the business, they usually end up running the business. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I think so too. And I think uh, I think that started also in, in a revolution in Japan. I think like if I think there was a story, I don't remember the company name, but there was like this food processing company. And if you want to start as a manager, you first needed to work two years into the meat uh, processing factory you know, just as a regular employee next to everybody else. And then after this two years, then you became a manager. I think it's, I think we can learn a lot of things from that in the, in the software space. So you said when we first started talking that people do a lot of things that don't work when they're trying to, to solve these problems or move the needle before they find out like a formula or meet with you and figure out how to get systems in place correctly. What are some of the things that they're trying that, that aren't working? Yeah, I think I think most most managers or most leaders they don't think about behavior change strategies at all. Like, and I think that's that's the problem. Like, you know, they're adding to the mix. Like, we're going to buy this tool, or we're going to implement a new process, or we're going to invest more in more features of our product. But they never think about uh, behavior change strategies. Like, what kind of strategy can we can we develop to change the behaviors of our employees or to change behaviors of our customers? And I think. That's really important because, again, if you think about it, if you change the behaviors, you change the habits of people or habits of yeah habits of people and customers, and this will lead to to different results. And in most organizations, this 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 model is is just absent. It's not there. So there's no framework or no no governance process that is helping with with this change. And I think if you're in a software space, you need to constantly change, right? You need to constantly adapt and change because you can do a, a digital transformation and after the digital transformation, you're done, but it doesn't work like that. You, you should continue developing, continue to change. So you need to build up this memory muscle to continuously change and uh, this continuous change mindset that needs to grow <laughs> in people. You need to change your culture first. And I think a lar- large part of culture, like culture is, what is it, right? <laughs> and I think uh, a big part of, of culture is behavior, how we behave in a company. And we can define core values of a company, but they're too fake. <laughs> like nobody knows that. Like we want to be, you know, everybody should be an entrepreneur. Like what, what does it even mean for us, right? 
<laughs> but I think if you translate it back into, okay, what are then the norms that we should live by? And if you can then translate these norms into, okay, what behaviors do we then expect in a company? Or what behaviors do we require from engineers? Or what behaviors do we expect from um, marketing managers? Um, if you can then document that and you put, can put it in, in their functions, then you can evaluate people on that. You can do performance reviews based on behavior, which I think is not based on, you know, did you, did you make the results, yes or no, right? I think you should really reward and, and incentivize people on, on how they behave, but it's n- almost never quantified. And I think that's, that's what was largely missing in action. And OKRs could help with that, right? It's, but again, it is an addition to what's already, what should already be there. When you're doing these projects, is it typically with smaller companies or larger companies? It varies a bit. So I, I helped some startups as well. I invested in some startups as well. But typically, I help a little bit larger organizations. So um, from, I think, like 30 to 50 product teams, something like that, until like Fortune 500 companies like ING in the Netherlands uh, or Nike. So it really depends, but my, my sweet spot is actually because I have this um, software engineering background to help like SaaS companies or fintech companies. That, that's, that's my sweet spot because then I have some, uh, some uh, knowledge in that area. So I prefer to, to um, engage with these companies. Cool. And I want to give a shout out before I forget. You have a podcast. What's the name of your podcast? Yeah, we just started it. <laughs> and, the pod- and the podcast name is just very fresh. It's a, uh, the Phil's and Bart Software Adventures. I started that podcast with a good friend of mine, Philip Lander. And he's, um, he's the CPO, CTO of Litunista, which is a small company in the Netherlands as well. And we, we're just geeks around the software delivery method, which is called extreme programming. It's, it's really old. It's developed by Ken Beck around 2000. And we are obsessed by this technique. And I think there's a lot of harmony with OKRs and, 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 and extreme programming. And I try to unify these models as much as I can together because I think the principles behind and the values behind extreme programming really matches. So in this podcast, we try to, to explore this concept and how that applies to modern, modern software development. Yeah, I've, I've heard of Kent Beck. I've read some of his stuff, but I hadn't like actually gone into extreme programming. When we were in our prep meeting doing review, we thought that it would be something like competitive style, something of that nature, but it's more of a framework. Yeah, so it, so that's the funny thing. Like it was considered, it, it was considered extreme in two thousand, where you had like you know software development cycles of one year or half a year cycles or something like that. Right, it really took ages to to get some piece of software out. And there was a lot, a lot of waterfall, uh, a lot of waterfall, and you know, uh, I think it was even before the Agile Manifesto came out. And then Ken Beck, he uh, he wrote this book, and it, he, 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 we was calling it extreme programming. But today, it shouldn't be extreme at all. It should be just regular <laughs> software development, and it's the only software development method out there, right? Uh, uh, things like Scrum, and so um, th- these are not software development methods at all. They're just work systems. So this is the real software development method, the only software development method out there that's documented and tested in time. But it isn't extreme anymore. So these days, but um, you you would be surprised how many uh, engineering teams don't work or don't look at these uh, values and principles to become high-performing team. I think if they should, then a lot of organizations will reduce a lot of waste in their organizations. But however, there there are some uh, extreme 
things that are still there. For example, OKRs or lean OKRs is still an extreme thing because not a lot of organizations can can do this. Well, why why can't why can't organizations do OKRs? Because it requires a lot of prerequisites for them for in order to do that. So for starters, they need to become a product team. Like like you know, then should be they should have like cross-functional teams. Well, in many organizations that's still not the case, right? They're still well, we only have like engineers and then we have different QA departments and we have different uh, department that's defining the requirements for us. And you would just throw things over the fence. We have a different ops department that's doing the ops. So it makes it really hard to do OKRs. So just imagine that you need to run, if you're a startup, then it's easy, right? You can run a couple of experiments per, per week. But if you're a little bit larger, like 500 people or so in size, then running five or, or 10 experiments per week in production is sometimes crazy, let alone for larger established companies. Like they can't even release, <laughs> make a software release every every month, let alone that you can release experiments six to 10 times uh, per week. So you need to build up these technical capabilities so you can actually do these experiments. And you can experiment fast and fail fast. And you get these feedback loops in place. But in a lot of organizations, these feedback loops, they don't exist or they're too slow to get some decent feedback. And then, you know, OKRs don't work because with OKRs, you try to do weekly check-ins and see if, if some metrics are moving up or down. Uh, and based on, on these results, you, you take appropriate actions. But if you need to wait for one month or two months to see a metric go up and down, yeah, you, then you're too late. So that's, I think, what's often missing in many organizations. Of course, if you're just, you know, <laughs> two, two, two guys in the garage, then things are different. But um, yeah, when you're a little bit larger, then... And I think that sweet spot already starts at 30 people, something like that. Then things are already going down. I did an interview with GoDaddy, the CTO of GoDaddy, and I was fascinated by how well they run experiments across the company and they've built their own software to manage the experiments. I hadn't seen a company of, of such scale do it so as such a large part of their culture. Yeah, we have a company here in the Netherlands. It's called Bookings.com. Bookings.com? Yeah. Yeah. They do similar patterns. Like they have like a, tons of experiments running in production. It's just crazy. Yeah. But they, exactly, they built a, the whole framework for that to, to run those, all these experimentations and to see the results. So, for a CTO or tech leader, let's give some context. Let's say they have 30 people in engineering and they're growing, right? They're a growing company. They have 30 people in engineering. It started out, the CTO is you know, just co-founder, them and someone else, and, and they're so happy to be where they are, but they want some insight or some advice, like one thing that they should be thinking about or they could be doing to, to improve. What would you tell them? Improve the speed of learning in a company. One of the big bottlenecks that we see in organizations, especially when they're growing, is you know how how fast information is is reaching down to the branches like or reaching the engineers, and when a company grows, that ability goes away, <laughs> or you know there's a lot of top down management happening, and then the information that is needed for for engineers is is, is not coming to them right, or they have some wiki page and they can't find the information that they want or other things. So I think if you optimize for speed of learning. Just from the very start, uh, feedback loops, uh, how to do documentation, coaching, training, etc. I think this is one of the biggest things they should master. Thank you, thank you. That's good. I, I haven't heard uh, that one said like that before. I did learn a lot when I started 
a, a like learning company specifically because you were selling into learning and development teams. And yeah. so you had to start learning all of their words and all of that. And one of the things that I learned is behavior change. They talk about behavior change constantly. Their scales, they measure it, they try different things. People dedicate their whole lives to researching this. And when I started to go over there, I was like, wow. When you learn how people learn, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, and I think a lot of managers should should master this skill. And I, I always do the thought experiment with engineers. So just think about your, your last biggest project. Okay. And then think about how, how long it took you to finish that project. And, and probably most, most people say, well, you know, three months, something like that, six months, maybe large, large project took me three months, six months to develop. And I say, okay, what if you need to do this project again? with all the knowledge that you now have. How much time does it take you now? And they said, well, yeah, uh, one week, yeah. <laughs> right? Or, yeah. or, 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 or those kind of crazy numbers. So then I said like, okay, what's the bottleneck now? Is the bottleneck really how fast you can implement your requirements or how fast you can type? Or so what's the bottleneck? Well, the bottleneck is always you know, knowledge. So when you're thinking about optimizing that, when you're thinking about lean, I think it's all you know, knowledge that is stacked, it's queued up. And that needs to be processed and it's not going fast enough. So if you optimize how fast people can learn, then you nailed it, I think. Yeah, and I think, I think a lot of engineers, engineering managers, et cetera, CTOs, they forget about this. And that's one of the things that I, you know, in my book also tell Lean OKRs is that you should go away from, you know, this, this passive management style, but you should actually start coaching people way more actively, coaching, teaching, so they become you. Or not you, but they master the same skills. So I think that's really powerful. So speed of learning is everything in, in, in both teaching and but also in feedback loops that you get from customers and et cetera, which will ultimately then change behaviors. Because if you you can't change your behavior if you don't know if you don't know how to act or react or something like that. Why should I listen to you? <laughs> what's like what's your experience historically? Have you been operated as a software engineer? Yeah, so I have a strong background in software engineering. I started when I was 18 years old. You know, I always did my, my studies next to work. So it was a special program. So four days a week and one day I, got, I went to university. So I already started like really, really young. So that was in the middle of the dot-com hype. So it was, you know, crazy times. It was amazing. So I had this, this education in, in uh, so and then, uh, uh, you know, I have studied in, in software engineering and, and organizational design, etc. So, um, my ultimate goal was I want to work for a space agency, right? <laughs> European space agency to be exact. Well, NASA would be great, but you know I live in Europe, so the, the, you know second best thing, <laughs> European space agency. Don't say that. <laughs> Europe is a great first choice. <laughs> <laughs> but now you're SpaceX, anyway. Yeah, so that was my dream to work to work there. Uh, there. So and I did. So uh, I worked there helping on innovative solutions for the, for the Galileo project, which is a constellation of uh, you know, 35 satellites. Basically, we want to get rid of GPS as Europe. Oh. <laughs> we develop our own navigation system, which is better, which is called Galileo. So I, I worked there to, to experiment with a lot of innovation projects there. Then the lead time of these changes, the lead time <laughs> of the changes, I didn't like because the changes that we implemented are still need to be launched. 
uh, into orbit. So yeah, there's a lead time of 10 years or something like that. So, it, you know, waterfall, <laughs> all, all the, so I wanted to do, you know, I thought that it was all, you know, software engineering in, in space is cool, right? You know, robots and, you know, Mars landers, etc. but it's, it's really boring. So, so I decided to, to, to quit and join the, the commercial software development, uh, industry. And I started in, in, in a lot of companies like, uh, primarily into fintech and uh, started working in a company that grew from nine people in the basement to now now today uh, like 2000 people so really rapid curve with okrs implemented and uh, so and i've been in working in various functions so from software engineer myself into platform architect interim cto all these kind of roles i i did but uh I'm really happy to know to be part of this journey to to help people implement OKRs because I think a lot of engineer engineers can benefit from working in this way, and I think a lot of people for for a lot of organizations I think you owe it to your people to to work with this technique or not necessarily OKRs but you know working in outcome driven way so people get more engaged and get more you know have more purpose in their work. And how do you get started with that? Well, I think. How you get started? I think you should, of course, buy the <laughs> buy and read there the book. Go. I think that's the easiest one. <laughs> yeah, that's where I was going but, uh, with it. yeah, call you. Call me. No, no. I think I think the most easiest one. There's if you go to my website, movingtheneedle.com, There's a free email course where you can just sign up and you get like uh, 13 lessons for free, and then you get to just the basics of OKRs, and you can you know make adjustment call if it's something for you or not. Maybe your organization is ready for it. Maybe your team is ready for it or not. And then you can take it from there. And then you can buy the book or ask me for help or something. But um, I think that's the easiest way. But like I said before, like, I think you should also check on your culture first. Like, are we, are we ready for this experimentation and this rapid growth? Because it's, it can be very challenging for engineers to work in this way, right? It's not that it's very stressful, but if you're going to be asked to uh, improve business outcomes or customer outcomes, it's not entirely in your control anymore, right? And you need to come up with, you need, always need to think about solutions and think about in, in, innovative ideas. And sometimes that can be challenging for, for people. And there's a lot of teamwork involved in that. And maybe if you don't like teamwork, you don't w- want to work in this kind of context. So yeah, but this, uh, I think for most engineers, they, they love fixing hard problems, right? So I think I think it's a perfect match if you if you want to solve bigger problems than only you know uh, the, the next re- the requirement of today, <laughs> then I think uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to start using it or experiment with it. Just try it try it out for for one quarter, see if it works, if it changes anything in your company. I think it's easier now more than ever. Uh, when I started programming, I mean, the first several years of my career were just me and like a manual. And then I found out like people wrote books about it. <laughs> and then I started following people that wrote these different books. And I realized that then they had conferences. And then, I mean, this is over the course of a decade, like the, yeah. the first journey. And then once I realized that there's books and there's conferences, and then there's thoughts, like different patterns of thoughts within like the software industry as a whole. And yeah. you get to the point where you find out what everybody agrees on. And then you find out what the experts, the details the experts argue over. So now if I were to go into like another industry, the first thing I would do is, who's the top authors? What are the conferences? What are the talks that they're giving at the conferences? What do they agree on? What don't they agree on? Because then you can speed up your learnings like significantly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I also remember that I still left them on my shelf, all my C++ books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, buy the book, Moving the Needle. 
yeah. give Bart a call if you want to move the needle. <laughs> and then is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to touch on? No, I think we touched on a lot of topics. Well, yeah. well, we nailed it, man. Thank you so much. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Yeah, nice conversation. Yeah, good questions. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.